Prime members, you can binge entire seasons of Legacy ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. A listener note. This episode contains references to child sexual abuse. Welcome to the second episode of our series about Pablo Picasso, the greatest artist of the 20th century, but a man whose legacy has been tarnished by revelations about his personal life and character. When we left you at the end of episode one, Picasso had been through his blue period, sparked by the suicide of his best friend, Carlos Casagemas, and returned to Paris to set up in a studio in the squalid surroundings of Le Bateau Lavoir, a former piano factory he shares with a group of other bohemian artists. Fame and fortune have yet to come his way, but he has met a muse and the first real love of his life, Fernand Olivier, a painter and model who arrives at the Bateau Lavoir seeking shelter from a storm. Fernand already has a past. Born out of wedlock as Amélie Long, she has a difficult childhood and runs away from home and marries while still a teenager. But her husband is so abusive, she leaves him without a divorce and changes her name so he can't find her. The relationship with Picasso is also a tempestuous one, with both said to be jealous and possessive lovers. November 1905, Bateau Lavoir, Montmartre. Fernand Olivier sits up on a thin, stained mattress as her long, red hair falls onto her shoulders. In the small, cramped studio, a dying fire flickers in the corner. With the last of the coal gone, the room is freezing. She covers herself with a woolen blanket. She feels Pablo's hand on the small of her back before he kisses her tenderly on the neck. He pulls her in close, wrapping his arms tightly around her. She feels as if nothing else matters. She feels more loved than his art. Have you decided, mi amor? He wants her to move in with him, but he has one condition. She can no longer work or model. He intends for her to belong only to him. She would spend her days alone in his studio. Fernand enjoys her work and the independence making her own money brings. If she were to stop working, how would she survive? Pablo barely makes enough money for coal. But she does want to make him happy. He cares for her in ways she's never had before. And at least he doesn't hit her. So she says, yes, I'll stay here and live with you. Pablo smiles. So it's done. He stands up. He has a lot to do. First, to go shopping, he picks up a net bag and heads to the door. She hears it shut behind him. And then the sound of the key turning. He's locked her in from the outside. For a few seconds, the walls of the cramped studio seem to close in on her. But Fernand quickly reassures herself, he'll be back soon. From Wondery and Goalhanger, I'm Peter Frankopan. I'm Afwa Hirsch. And this is Legacy, the show that tells the lives of some of the most extraordinary men and women to have ever lived and asks if they have the reputation that they deserve. This is Picasso, Episode 2, A Tangled Web. 
Sanand is pretty vulnerable. Even though she's an independent woman, she has her own livelihood. She's actually successful as an artist model. She's a popular muse for artists. She gets paid to model for them. But she's had a really abusive marriage. Violent, sexually abusive, controlling. I think she's probably quite traumatized. And I wonder how much Picasso sees that and sees the potential to have the kind of control we will learn over time he does like to have. Well, we saw last episode, she comes to find him in the storm looking for shelter. He's her saviour to start with. But interestingly, I heard an interview she later gave in old age about that meeting, and she said it was the first time he dared speak to me. So he'd seen her around Le Bateau Lavoie. Lots of artists lived there. She was a popular model. And she felt that he had been watching her and she was regarded by lots of people as very beautiful, but he hadn't had the courage to speak to her and it was that meeting in the storm where she was sheltering and he had this kitten that finally gave him the confidence to approach her. So even though she was vulnerable, she definitely had a sense of her desirability. But that's one way of telling it. The other way, isn't that what predators do? Exactly. And there is something about taking this woman who you almost didn't dare speak to and then owning her and shutting her off from all her other options. That that feels particularly troubling. Does an artist get away with that? Because the idea of an artist having a muse is somehow kind of both romantic and it's sort of involved in who you're drawing and it's an act of love to pick out women particularly and to keep painting them again and again? Or does that create an, an unbalanced one-sided relationship of a master? I mean, that's what they're called, great masters. Well, I think that as we have these conversations, we keep coming back to this question of how you navigate judging someone by the standards of the time, how you recognise that it was a different time, there were different norms, without giving people an easy way out of things that are objectively wrong. I think that's like really difficult. We've grappled with it. We'll continue to grapple with it. It's definitely true that these artist muses, these female models, were operating in a very patriarchal society. The painters were men. The celebrated artists were men. And they were outside the protection of respectable society. They posed nude. They often had sexual relationships with the painters. Many of those relationships had unequal power and could be exploitative. I don't think that makes it any more okay then than it would be now. But I don't think Picasso would have had a sense of that being outrageous behaviour. I think the people around him would probably have condoned it. I mean, they did. They actually shared a friendship group. People knew how he behaved and it didn't stop people wanting to be friends with them, wanting to be in their circle. So I think it's fair to look at it objectively. He was controlling her. He was locking her in. She was independent. He took her independence away. I feel comfortable judging that as problematic, toxic abusive behaviour. At the same time, I think it was an environment that tolerated that kind of behaviour. But Picasso, we know, had had a relationship already with a woman called Madeleine who'd become pregnant and had an abortion. So Picasso, I suppose, tried to find his way around what it means to have a functional relationship with a partner. And Fernand is a well-known muse, someone who's been painted that gorgeous red hair, uh, visually striking. But, you know, it's not completely that he gets to control everything. She tries to leave him a couple of times. For a few reasons. For a few reasons. Tell me about tell me about one of those. <laughs> it's a bit of a deal breaker. <laughs> I'm coming across as a bit um, snooty and bougie in this episode. Not only were they living in very squalid conditions, but Pablo had in my opinion, some personal hygiene issues. Not just your opinion, Fernand's opinion. And Fernand's opinion. Right. She was with me. He just 
didn't have good personal hygiene. He wasn't clean. He didn't groom and wash himself regularly. You could cast it as part of his obsession with art. He was always creating. He spent hours, whole nights in the studio. He also didn't pay attention to nutrition and food. You know, he would just be consumed by what he was doing. But their relationship starts to settle down when they start smoking opium together, which I don't think I'd That's recommend. one solution, isn't it? <laughs> like a, a, a problematic, controlling relationship involving a lack of personal hygiene. You just but self-medicate your way drugs. out of it. Yeah. Yeah. Add drugs and everyone can smile. And everyone loves each other yeah. again. It definitely works for them. And it really does change the relationship. And the relationship changes Picasso's work because after this depressive blue period, the colour starts seeping back into his paintings now. And we're looking at a work from that period now, Peter, in this lovely collection of art that we have. This painting from 1905 is called Family of Acrobats with Monkey. And it shows a young couple with the woman holding a child and a monkey looking on. And it's a famous work from this period that later became known as the Rose Period because of these pinky, orangey hues that are now becoming synonymous with his work. What do you feel when you look at this painting? Well, if you didn't know about Fernand and the hygiene and the opium, (laughs) you know, it's a very tender image of acrobats who are off work. They're not at the moment performing, but they're sitting very tenderly next to each other with the man, I suppose the husband or the father of the child, paying close attention both to child and spouse, just in a private, personal moment of great tenderness. How do you see the pink in this? I know the blue period is a great favourite of yours. Do you think that this speaks of that love and that warmth of a functional relationship and happiness? For me, I I approach this maybe more cerebrally, whereas the blue period really reached me more emotionally. The subjects are really interesting. The acrobats, Pablo, you know, was interested throughout his life in people who were slightly on the fringes of society, in the circus, in entertainment, in the slums. They were a bohemian culture in a different way, I guess. It's interesting the kind of juxtaposition of what's like quite a conventional family setup, but the clothes that indicate the circus life and the monkey like little shots fired into that conventional normal life which I I quite enjoy but there is still like a subdued nature to the scene here I find the rose period there is something muted about it even though it's more colourful and that indicates joy there's something muted about it for me you I don't find it quite as exciting yeah as the blue I mean it's not entirely conventional but it's quite conventional yeah It's interesting in the painting as well that the woman is not being modelled on Fernand, but on Madeleine, who you mentioned earlier, Picasso's former girlfriend. And she's the one who got pregnant and had an abortion. It's hard to know how Picasso feels about these morally ambiguous things that he does and decisions he's involved in. But you wonder if depicting Madeleine as the woman holding the child is some kind of expression of regret or sadness about how that played out. The the most tender bit is the infant reaching up to touch the mother's face and not, of course, the father, which is interesting if this is, in fact, Madeleine and a child that was never born. But what's interesting is the subject of children at Picasso's relationship is something that comes up again and again, both in his art and in his private life too. I mean, as it happens, Fernand can't actually have children after a miscarriage while she was married. But eventually she and Picasso do adopt a child, but that doesn't work out very well, of which we'll mention that a bit later. It's a horrendous episode, which we'll come back to. In the meantime, Picasso is starting to finally integrate into life in Paris. He's learning French at last, and he's still striving for recognition as an artist. But in 1905, that's all about to change when another woman enters his life. And this one won't become a lover. For one thing, she's gay. And secondly, she becomes an actual friend. And this is perhaps the only platonic 
platonic friendship with a woman that Picasso will ever have. Yeah, that's right. Gertrude Stein is an American heiress raised in California who'd been left a fortune when both of her parents died while she was in her teens. Uh, she'd moved to Paris in 1903 and had hosted legendary get-togethers with leading literary figures of the day, like Hemingway, F. Scott Fitzgerald, Ezra Pound, Sinclair Lewis and the like. Stein's actually a novelist herself and an avid collector of avant-garde art together with her brother. When she sees Picasso's work in a gallery, she immediately heads over to the Bateau Lavoie and buys 10 of his paintings for 800 francs, a fortune for Picasso, and suddenly allowing him to be more financially secure than he has been to this point. That's got to be one of the best investments of all time. 800 francs for 10 Picassos. 10. Anyway, Picasso starts work on a portrait of Gertrude, which he works on for a year, but he struggles to get her face right. He wants to do something different, Afwa, because this is a time when artists are having to face and to fear new technologies, and that technology is photography. I think you could compare the fear that artists had about technology at this period to the way artists, writers, actors fear AI and generative AI in particular that allows machine learning to replicate human creativity. And there is such deep fear right now that writers will be out of a job because computers can already mimic your voice. They can create fiction. They can write scripts. They can write books. If you imagine... 125 years ago, when photography was becoming widely available, artists were grappling with this question of whether there would be any demand for painting anymore. Now that you could actually capture reality, literally, would people still want an artist's rendering of the world, an artist's imagination? What would the place of it be? And I think it went from the very literal question of will people want to spend money on paintings to these more existential questions that scholars like Walter Benjamin for example, were asking whether photography would destroy the aura of art, whether the magic of the creative process that human artists use would be obliterated. The thing is, how do you respond? How do you then make it that what you're doing is something that photography can't do or something that AI can't do for writing and for scripts? And if you're smart, that can produce a premium for you because although you can have generic things done quickly and cheaply, if you're able to develop a style that is recognisably different... That does make a difference. I mean, you know, some writers about photography, like Elizabeth Eastlake, had complained and said, although photographs look real, actually, you don't capture life. You know, the eyes look dead. You know, it's just an image of someone rather than capturing their essence. It's a really important provocation for Picasso because it forces him to dig deeply and ask himself what he wants to contribute to the visual world. And I think that makes him reflect more on what his authentic style is going to be, how he's going to use that Spanish gaze of his to render things in a way that might depart more from the realism of Renaissance art, from trying to replicate how we see things. It almost gives him permission to do something different. And I think that's exactly what we see in this portrait of Gertrude Stein, which I actually love. It's one of my favourite Picassos. And he's really struggling to finish it at this point. So he's been working on it for months. He is receiving patronage from her, which at least alleviates his immediate money concerns. And he goes back to Spain, to the Catalan mountains, and there he's inspired by the ochre tones of the earth, which will become the key colour in the pink period. So when Picasso and Fernando are back in Spain in the Catalan mountains, they visit a church 
And in it, Picasso notices a 12th century statue of the Virgin and Child, and the empty gaze of the Virgin overwhelms him. Finally, he's found the face he's looking for, and he goes back to Paris and quickly completes the portrait of Gertrude Stein. Autumn 1906, Bateau Lavoir, Montmartre. Picasso paces his studio anxiously. Fernande tries her best to calm him down. She offers him tea, wine, opium, but it doesn't work. Only one thing will reassure him. He's awaiting a visit from Gertrude Stein, whose portrait he's been working on for nearly a year. With approval from Gertrude, Picasso will be accepted as one of the new modern artists and his work will finally receive the recognition it deserves. He knows he's created a masterpiece. But will Gertrude agree? A knock on the front door. Fernand looks apprehensively at Picasso as he nods for her to open it. Gertrude greets Fernand warmly before making her way over. Picasso is too nervous for small talk and swiftly pulls away the sheet covering the portrait. Gertrude tilts her head to the side as she studies the painting. The tension in the room is palpable. For a while, she says nothing and then gives her verdict. It doesn't look anything like me. Picasso looks to the floor. Has he made the biggest mistake of his life? A smile spreads across her face. But I love it. I'll hang it in my studio. She embraces Picasso as both he and Fernand let out loud sighs of relief. I never doubted you would and the room erupts with laughter. Picasso has created a portrait that's never been seen before, and this powerful art collector has given it the seal of approval. And now we're looking at it here in the studio, Afwa. It's a key work in the pink period, painted between 1905 and 1906, and that face is almost a mask. And I know you love this picture. I really like this picture. Do you know what? I'm actually reflecting on it now. It's one of the very few, maybe the only, paintings of women that Picasso created that doesn't have undertones of violence and power in a way that is threatening or troubling. I look at this and I feel the physicality of this woman. And it's such an imposing image. There's a kind of foreshadowing of the cubism and the use of African mask-like dimensions that he later incorporates into his work. But it's just so unique. And I find it really stimulating. I think it's so unusual, especially in that era, to see a woman who's just allowed to be a character. You know, she doesn't conform to any stereotypical ideas about femininity, but she's not overly masculinized. She's just unique. You just get a sense of her presence, of the way she takes up space, the way she kind of sits in her own skin. She says she sat 80 to 90 times for this. And I also love the story of the painting that he he did most of it and then he just couldn't get the face right. And he looked at her and he looked at her and she sat over and over again. And then he went away and had this like epiphany with the Virgin Mary, which is an odd frame of reference for Gertrude Stein, who's this like... Particularly for Gertrude Stein. <laughs> it just doesn't fit at all. And then he finished it in a single go without her even being there because it just all became clear to him. I just find that so fascinating and mystical almost. So I find this painting really refreshing. I feel like there's no agenda here. There's just this 
interesting relationship, this quirky pairing, this curiosity about who she is and how to capture her. And I really love the result. But after years on the breadline at the Bateau Lavoie, things are now really looking up for Picasso. He's got a very wealthy patron who's happy with her portrait. He and Fernand to become regulars at Gertrude Stein's legendary parties, along with the great and the good on the Paris art scene. And he meets Henri Matisse, the superstar of French modernism, who's 12 years older than Picasso, and they become, I would describe them as frenemies. Sort of friends, rivals, occasionally enemies, on and off for the next 50 years. And their relationship has been described as a game of chess. Matisse himself compared it to a boxing match. They would eye each other's work constantly and even paint the same subjects, sometimes even with the same titles. Yeah, Matisse is the one who's seen as the real innovator at this time. And Picasso still painting relatively conservative pieces. But a visit to a Paris exhibition about so-called primitive arts is about to change all of that. Spring 1907, Ethnographic Museum, Paris. Picasso hangs back by the entrance. The odour of mould and neglect have caught him by the throat. It's a far cry from the exhibitions he's used to attending, and he'd like nothing more than to head home. The only thing greater than the stench in the air is Picasso's need for creativity. So he takes a deep breath, places a handkerchief discreetly over his nose, and enters the room. The exhibition he walks into is full of rudimentary knives and bland metal pots. He shakes his head and mutters loudly to himself, He knew he shouldn't have bothered. But as he gets to the door, something suddenly catches his eye. He moves over to the case, still unsure what he's looking at. It appears to be a mask, but it's unlike any face Picasso has ever seen. It's carved from dark brown wood, which is smooth and shiny, and there are tiny slits for the eyes and a larger slit for the mouth. The incredibly long nose is connected to high-arched eyebrows and make up the main focal point of the large oval object. As a contrast to the dark brown, the cheeks, the eyelids and space around the mouth have all been dyed white, it's extraordinary. The works are categorised as primitive arts, but there is nothing primitive about any of this. He feels a tingle down his spine. He forces himself to stay, examines all the masks one by one, and slowly comes to a realisation. All these objects have been created with a sacred, magical purpose, to serve as intermediaries between their creators and the unknown, the hostile forces surrounding them. They're overcoming their fears by giving them colour and form. He now understands what painting really means. It's not an aesthetic process. It's a form of magic that interposes itself between us and the hostile universe, a means of seizing power by imposing a form on our terrors, as well as on our desires. I've found my path, he thinks to himself, and dashes to the exit. He needs to get to his studio. And what comes next, Peter, is the work we're looking at now, originally titled The Brothel of Avignon, but later renamed the Demoiselles d'Avignon, or the Young Ladies of Avignon, to avoid offence. 
It's a depiction of five women who were prostitutes in Avignon Street in Barcelona's red light district, with angular features, contradictory proportions, widely regarded as the birth of cubism. And it was almost certainly inspired by African art. Although Picasso denied this, it was certainly scandalous. Many thought it was immoral. And even though he completed it in 1907, it wasn't exhibited until 1916, nine years after it was painted. Picasso was really proud of this when he finished it, and he waited with great anticipation to see what his peers and patrons thought of it. And their reaction was beyond disappointing. They didn't like it. They didn't get it. They thought it was grotesque. It didn't make sense. It was obscene. And so he just kind of like rolled it up and left it in the corner for a long time. But Cubism is trying to paint in a different way with angles and with distortions. So some of it is to do with the deliberate way that Picasso is saying, I'm not trying to represent how people look. This was the radical departure that I think really did come to define the rest of Picasso's career when he realised what he wanted to lean into. He was so inspired by, and it's such a terrible term, primitive art, and I completely reject it because it's part of this colonial way of looking at Europe as civilization and Africa, Asia, Oceania as these primitive, backward, savage races, which is profoundly white supremacist and colonial. But that's how they were described at the time. And actually one of the reasons this is an important work of art is it's such a profound example of how many of the greatest moments in European creativity lifted ideas from African culture and then didn't recognise it, didn't acknowledge it. And that allowed this kind of cognitive dissonance where people enjoyed the progress that was made from African creativity while continuing to regard Africa as contributing nothing to the world. And you can only kind of square that circle by being dishonest. I think there are reasons why Picasso is dishonest about the influence of African art. I think that at that time, 1906, 1907, African art and art from other parts of the world was starting to come into vogue as a subject of interest. And like any artist, he didn't want to admit that he was inspired by something that other people were beginning to be inspired by. I think it was partly him jealously guarding his sources of inspiration. But you can really see it. And what's interesting about this painting is the mixture of styles and themes. You know, you've got the women staring directly out at the painting. You've got the women looking into the painting and you've got these two figures on the right of the painting whose faces really are representations from masks. He's just torn up the rule book about perspective, about dimension, about reality. It's hard, I think, for us to appreciate how radical this was at the time. People were really confused, appalled, shocked by it. They'd never seen anything like this before. And also, although they are not graphic, I mean, there's no representation of sexual organs in a way that is graphic. The fact that the Picasso had originally called it Le Bordel d'Avignon, the brothel of Avignon, is the, the hypocrisy of, on the one hand, there are brothels everywhere. And every, you know, we know we heard already Picasso had been going to them since he was 13. But some of it is also about the idea that these are profane subjects that don't deserve to be painted and seen in public. There's something very difficult about this painting, about the women's gaze and the way they look at you and the way they engage you and the way they make you complicit almost in their objectification because they're nude, they're in a brothel. The way that nudity is depicted here is suggestive, inviting. There's a defiance about it, but also a context where this is taboo and these women are not regarded as respectable in a society that's objectifying them. And I feel that Picasso draws you in to the perpetrators of that objectification in a way. And that's quite difficult, the way that he has depicted them. But I think 
there's an honesty about it because it's a scene from a brothel. He frequented brothels. There is a power dynamic. There is a transactional relationship with sex. And that's a reality that these women inhabited. And then the use of the masks is a kind of allusion to the unseen, the supernatural, the sense of forces at work beyond what we can see. And I I just think it's really interesting to contemplate what that means in this context. And the mask involved in prostitution, because none of these women are doing this intentionally and for joy and for pleasure in a way that the act of sex is supposed to be an enjoyable and intimate one. It's one where the women are not smiling. They are effectively offering their body, but no connection with their personality, their soul, their their hearts. So there's something about it that is speaking to the thing that we know Picasso enjoys himself, which is visiting women for sex. It's also important to really emphasise how much thought went into this painting, you know, because it seems slightly fragmented and fractured and complicated. He was so deliberate about this. It could be one of the most well-prepared pieces of art in history. He did hundreds of sketches, drawings, preparatory plans for how this was going to come together. He threw himself into it completely obsessively, even by his own standards. He felt like he was creating something transformative with this work. And I think over time, the rest of the world has caught up with that assessment. I mean, it is now regarded as one of his great masterpieces, arguably the most important single piece of art in the 20th century that changed the direction of modern art. At the time, nobody liked it. Well, not least Matisse. He called the painting hideous whores. (laughs) I think there's so much going on in his mind and you feel it when you look at the painting. And that is one thing that is powerful about this. It's instant, it's visceral. You can see him literally ripping up the rule book of his conditioning, his European conditioning, that classical painter his father wanted him to be. This feels like the final death knell to that dream that he'd begun rejecting so long ago. But even if the young ladies or the the Demoiselle d'Avignon isn't actually exhibited for another nine years, Picasso is now well on the road to stardom. Those years of financial struggle are at an end. And by 1909, he's able to move out of the squalor of Bohemian Paris. That's good news, Afro, for you and the the mouldy sausages. (laughs) And into a much more comfortable flat on the Boulevard de Clichy. Um, His paintings are being exhibited in the United States now, and that raises his profile even higher. And as the first decade of the 20th century closes, Picasso's 28 years old, Cubism is a big new movement of the art world, and it is a huge hit with dealers. Always prolific, he creates a huge number of what are now considered masterpieces. And it's a time of great technological innovation all around with the electric light bulb, uh, movies, airplanes. Picasso even compares himself to the aviation pioneers, the Wright brothers, and the way he's deconstructing traditional ideas and moving art forward, he thinks of himself as an innovator. But what of his personal life? Well, throughout this journey, Fernand Olivier has been Picasso's lover and muse, but she's about to be ruthlessly dumped. And Picasso's personal life is about to become ever more complicated. During the course of their relationship, Pablo Picasso paints over 60 portraits of his lover, Fernand Olivier. At first, he's so besotted by her and so jealous that he locks her up in the studio at the Bateau Lavoir, as we heard at the start of this episode. In 1907, Fernand, who can't have children herself after a miscarriage, goes to an orphanage and adopts a 13-year-old girl called Raymond. But after discovering Picasso has made explicit drawings of her, the girl is returned to the orphanage 
and never spoken of again. By 1911, with his career taking off, Picasso tires of Fernand and the couple split up in 1912. Because she is still married to her first husband, she has no legal right to anything from Picasso and he gives her nothing. She's forced to live hand-to-mouth through odd jobs like being a butcher's assistant. This isn't painting him in an enormously flattering light, but let's start with Raymond, the 13-year-old orphan that they adopt. This is just one of the saddest episodes in his life. It starts off in a really well-intentioned way. Fernand, who is very sad to not be able to have children, wants to create a family with Picasso. They go to an orphanage, they adopt a young girl. It's a good thing to do in theory. But if you think about their living conditions at this time, living this very bohemian lifestyle in this opium-filled studio apartment, all this coming and going of these artists. There's no structure. There's no stability. It's not a good environment for a child. And a child who's already had so much trauma in her life, having ended up in an orphanage, they bring her home. Fernand dotes on her, but finds that Picasso behaves inappropriately. And she doesn't like the way he looks at her, but she also finds when she's out, he's been having her pose nude, sometimes in explicit positions. There's no evidence that he ever actually abused her, but it's a very problematic relationship crossing many boundaries. And we know from later in his life that he did have a predilection for women, for girls even, much younger than him. And so Fernand reacts by taking this poor girl back to the orphanage, which must have just been devastating for her. And I've read accounts that suggest that Fernand did that out of jealousy, but also that she did it to protect this young woman because she wasn't safe with Picasso. And I think that really speaks to his unreliable morals as a man. Adopting a child, looking after her for four months and then giving her back, it's grotesque, isn't it? But just because you're a bad partner, it doesn't mean you have to be a bad ex-partner. You know, and Fernand goes on to be a cashier, butcher. She even gives drawing lessons and Picasso doesn't do anything to support her or help her. He just washes his hand, let's go. And it was like that with Raymond. She doesn't even get mentioned again. I watched a, a documentary in which an elderly Fernand goes back to the Bateau Lavoie and, you know, age wasn't kind to her. She had a hard life. She didn't profit at all from her relationship with Picasso. And the point she made, because, I mean, you don't be in a relationship with someone because you want to profit from them. But Picasso painted her again and again. She was his muse. He squeezed the inspiration out of her body, her face, her existence. It created so much art and he was content to completely cut her out of the long-term benefits of that. I think that's so heartless. Later, years, decades later in 1956, when Fernand is really ageing, she's suffering from deafness, she's suffering from arthritis, Picasso, who by now is super rich, agrees to pay her a small stipend to keep but, her going. As but long as... there are conditions attached, there are strings attached. It's the NDA. She's not allowed to talk about their relationship, which also doesn't... Red flag. Yeah, doesn't speak well of the nature of that relationship. No, and I would guess that it means that things are worse than we reckon they are. They're worse than the situation, either because Picasso is so private, he wants to keep all of these to himself. But as we're going to find out, that's not the only time that he tries to silence one of his former partners to control the story of Picasso too. 
Even before the split with Fernand, Picasso has already taken on another lover, Eva Guell, and she's the inspiration for the painting Woman with Guitar. This is an example of a new movement which becomes known as synthetic cubism. But Eva dies of tuberculosis in 1915 at the age of just 30. Three years later, in 1918, Picasso marries for the first time Olga Khotlova, the daughter of a wealthy Russian general. She's 26, so 10 years younger than he is. At first, Picasso seems content with married life. By this stage, he's rich, and the couple become part of French high society, spending summers on the French Riviera, helping to make it a fashionable go-to destination for the elite. Picasso hasn't quite shaken off his bohemian roots, though, and he isn't always comfortable with his wife's tendency for social climbing or her love of spending money. But despite this, Picasso's contentment shows in his work. His paintings become more conventional and realistic. In 1921, Olga gives birth to Picasso's first child, a son named Paolo. But, and you'll begin to spot a pattern emerging here, Picasso begins to tire of domestic life with Olga after the birth of Paolo. His paintings again start becoming more restless and more violent. He starts having affairs, and in 1927, the now 46-year-old Picasso meets 17-year-old Marie-Thérèse Walter and begins a relationship that will last for the rest of the next decade. Autumn 1930, Chateau de bois a mile outside Paris. Marie-Thérèse sits on a chair, naked. The warm morning sun shines through the open window, giving radiant illumination of her face and breasts. As Picasso works fervently behind the canvas, she witnesses the familiar look in his eyes. Her youthfulness brings him alive. Every time he paints her, she can feel his passion. Her thoughts travel to the afternoon they have planned. Lunch, followed by a long walk around the grounds. Then her visit will conclude as it always does. Lovemaking in his studio. She adores the uninterrupted days she spends with him, when no one exists except the two of them. At 17, she was only a girl when she met Picasso, but their three years together have matured her. Even though he's approaching his 50th birthday, Picasso appears more vibrant than when they met. Her thoughts are interrupted by the sound of a car coming up the drive. Panic is evident on Picasso's face as his eyes dart to hers. She's home early. Use the back stairs. He immediately leaps to his feet and is out of the room as Marie-Thérèse hurries to get dressed. As she's pulling on her skirt, she hears Picasso greet his wife and son. Olga, my darling, Paolo, how I've missed you. She knows Picasso is married and is fully aware of the arrangement, but the pangs of jealousy still sting. She exits the studio and tiptoes to the side door. It will take her down the back stairs where her bicycle awaits. She tries to push away thoughts that after she's gone, Picasso will be enjoying his other life. Well, I suppose it's a story as old as the hills. A married middle-aged man is captivated by a younger woman, but not every unfaithful man is going to put the contrast on public display. So I've got two paintings here. One is Olga in an armchair. It's a very conventional portrait of his wife. And then we've got The Dream, which depicts Mary Therese underneath a substantial phallus. I think it's pretty clear how Picasso feels about these two women. 
Well, you know, middle-aged men, they, they can get a bit of a hard time sometimes. So I, I'm not sure they all have to misbehave and fool around. But you're, you're right, the kind of the idea that Picasso is so powerful that he can do whatever he likes is not just in his personal relationships. His new ways of representing art means that he's taking risks of creating out of Marie Therese's face a phallus. I mean, it's pretty graphic. It really is graphic. And it also somehow works. It's also part of her face. I mean, it feels like an authentic representation of how he was feeling about her. I would say that his relationship with Olga is actually the thing that seems like an aberration to me. I mean, she is from high society. She's from a very well-to-do family. Through her, he enters the most bourgeois circles in Paris. They live in, I think, the Place Vendôme in a very fancy area. And they have this initially conventional marriage. He's her plus one. She's his plus one. They go to societal events together. He wears spats and she wears gowns. It's not very Picasso. I wonder what the younger him would have thought of that him. You know, the younger him in Montmartre rejecting the bourgeois and rejecting the status quo, whether he would have felt like he'd ultimately assimilated into the kind of high society he almost looked down on. And I feel like you can see that in his art. His paintings of Olga are just quite boring. Quite dull. Dull. And very conventional. So, I mean, if you think that the Olga in an armchair, 10 years on from Demoiselle d'Avignon, which is sort of so innovative, so challenging, so difficult, and then the Olga in an armchair could have been painted by almost anybody. I mean, it doesn't, it's a, there's no part of it that says Picasso at all. But I suppose that's also Picasso's trajectory. He's now part of the mainstream, despite thinking of himself as being a revolutionary that you know, he then has to decide, does he pick the conventional route of domestic happiness and being sort of fawned over, or do you keep on trying to break rules? And that, that I think he finds a way of doing that with Marie-Thérèse. But, you know, 17 years old when he's 46, that's also not great. I mean, she's so young that one time he goes to the south of France and he needs somewhere to put her up. He actually puts her in a holiday camp for kids. She's a child and the age difference, the difference in life experience is so vast, but she obviously represents real and tangible desire for him. And this painting, The Dream, I mean, it just couldn't be more different from the way he's depicting Olga at the time. And the sensuality of this painting, I mean, just stepping aside for a moment from the really problematic and I think quite predatory nature of the relationship, he picked her up outside a shopping centre when she was just 17. You would look at this painting and it really, even the lines and the kind of the curve and the dance of it, it does feel so sensual. And, and many people have felt that about this painting. It actually sold for $155 million, which makes it one of the most expensive paintings ever ever sold. Well, you know, you can see the kind of ideas about big dick energy on display right here. I mean, the whole point of it. Literally. Literally. I mean, afraid, you know, I mean, it's, it's I, why should we not be able to say that? Because that's what he's doing. He's drawing something that says a lot about the viewer, because it's the side of Marie-Thérèse's face that you have to decide that that's what, how you're viewing, that this is not just her face, it's also a phallus. But those ideas, the animalism of sexual organs, of exposing one of Maria Therese's breasts as well, you know, it speaks to the idea that Picasso is sexually dominant and insistent. So he insists that his female companions and his lovers read the works of the Marquis de Sade, which are about pleasuring and giving pleasure, of course, towards men, rather than equal enjoyment of, of sex. And that speaks back to Picasso finding tools in which he can always win. That competitive spirit is something that can be very, very toxic when it comes to personal relationships. 
Speaking of which, I mean, this is obviously very sexually charged, but he created this series of etchings called the Volal Suites, which relate to his relationship with Marie-Thérèse, which take it to a different level. I mean, these are the drawings in which he depicts himself as the minotaur, the bull, ravishing. Some people have suggested raping. It's taking that subjugation, that very dominating masculinity to a different level. And those are really uncomfortable to look at, especially when you think this is a middle-aged man with a teenage girl. Well, the love triangle between Picasso, Olga and Marie-Thérèse comes to a head when Marie-Thérèse gives birth to Picasso's daughter, Maya, in 1935. And the birth certificate states, father unknown. Olga and Picasso separate and she moves out with their son, although they don't divorce because Picasso refuses to divide his estate with her. They actually remain married until Olga dies of cancer in 1955, 20 years later. Picasso is now 53 and the problems in his personal life are affecting his work. For a whole year, he stops making art. That is, until the outbreak of civil war in his home country, Spain, brings him back to the studio. And that's next time on Legacy. Prime members, you can binge entire seasons of Legacy ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. From Wondering Goalhanger, this is the second episode of our series on Picasso. A quick note about our dialogue. We can't know everything that was said or done behind closed doors, particularly when we go far back in history. But our scenes are written using the best available sources. So even if a scene or conversation has been recreated for dramatic effect, it's still based on biographical research. Legacy is hosted by me, Efwa Hirsch. And me, Peter Frankenpen. Scene writing is by Carla Williams. Archive audio is courtesy of Getty Images. For Goalhanger, our series producer is Paul King. Our assistant producer is Lizzie Hartree. Legacy is sound engineered by Phil Brown. Our sound designer is Joe Richardson. Music supervisor is Scott Velasquez for Frisson Sync. The executive producers for Goalhanger are Tony Pasta and Jack Davenport. Our producer for Wondery is Emanuela Quenorti Francis, and our managing producer is Rachel Sibley. Executive producers for Wondery are Estelle Doyle, Jessica Radburn, and Marshall Louis. <laughs>